Here at Popular Mechanics, we're pretty excited about the idea of going to Mars. And so is Andy Weir. You can tell because he wrote this whole book about it. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called The Martian. They turned it into a whole movie starring Matt Damon. Anyway, Andy is one of the experts for the new season of the National Geographic series Mars, which premieres Monday, November 12th. So he stopped by the studio to talk to us about what living on Mars might be like, what we'll need to get there, and whether he'd be willing to go himself. Also on this episode, tech editor Alex George went to last week's big Apple developer event and tries to explain the nonsense universe of Apple products. We also talk about circadian medicine, and the testing table makes Rice Krispie treats out of ramen. As always, I'm your host Jacqueline Detweiler, and you're listening to the most useful podcast ever. Our special guest on the podcast today is Andy Weir, who is author of The Martian, which was an awesome book and an even more awesome movie. I thought it was super cool. He is also an expert on National Geographic's Mars series, which premieres on November 12th at 9 p.m. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so the series is such a cool idea. Kevin, you were just watching the first season yesterday. Yeah, well, so I watched the first episode of the second season, and the way the show is set up is that there's expert interviews in the present But in the show, that's the past because then there's fictionalized, I mean, obviously fictionalized versions of people setting up a society on Mars um, in what, the mid 21st century? I think it's just 2030s, maybe early 2040s. But yeah, it's kind of a hybrid show. There's the fiction side and then the nonfiction side. And I'm on the nonfiction side. Yeah. And I think one of the really cool things about it is that they compare things that we're doing on Earth now and how those sort of inform how a society might start on Mars. So in the first episode, they're talking to people that work on an oil rig that's the northernmost oil rig in the planet. So it's like what you do when you're in an extreme environment and you need to extract resources. And then they compare that to what astronauts and potentially industry will do on Mars in the 2030s and 40s. Yeah. I mean... I had nothing to do with the creative side. So when they were interviewing me, I could kind of start to figure out the things that were going to happen in season two (laughs) because they're like, oh, we want to ask you questions about this. Now, what if this happened? Now, what if this, what if something (laughs) like this were to happen? I'm like, theoretically, uh, yeah. And so it was kind of interesting. I got some sneaky spoilers to season two back when they were interviewing me. So I would love to hear a little bit about your research, about how you have, I mean, I know this is kind of your hobby and you've always been into space, but how have you become an expert on this? Like, what do you do to find this stuff out? Well, I'm always quick to point out I'm an enthusiast, not an expert. Like, I, I, <laughs> well, you're, now you are an expert. I know, well, that's pretty I know. humble. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, in the same way that, you know, if you're really into cars, if you're a gearhead, you can see a picture of a car and say, like, oh, yeah, that's a 1937 Chevy, you know, but it doesn't mean that you that guy one. knows how to build one. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the scientists who dedicate their life to this stuff, those are the experts. I'm a guy who just is really into it. And I guess, I don't know, it's like any other hobby. It's, you know, whatever you're into, you're passionate about, you're willing to put a lot of time and effort into learning about, whether it's gardening or 17th century literature or space. <laughs> Yeah. What year did you write The Martian? Or what years were you writing that? I started writing it in 2009, and I finished around 2012. Yeah. So I was just going to say, so since then, now you've been working on this series, you know, that's four or five years past when you finished writing the book. How much have the technologies that, say, the producers are asking you about advanced since what you were looking into to write the book? Well, the technologies themselves haven't advanced that much, but our knowledge of Mars has advanced quite a lot. Like, a lot of people think, oh, yeah, Mars is out there. Scientists know about it. They want to study the rocks a little bit more. But no, they're learning huge things about Mars they never knew before. Like, when I wrote The Martian, for instance, it was presumed, it was just common assumption in the scientific community that Mars was arid, that it was just a barren desert, and that there might be some water at the poles, but that's it. And so my beloved Mark Watney has to do all this clever stuff to create water so that he can grow crops. And he has to, like, pull the 
hydrogen out of fuel that was left over from the descent module and then mix it with oxygen to make water and yada, 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 yada. And he blows himself up a little bit. In the process. <laughs> and then those bastards at JPL sent a probe down to the surface, the Curiosity lander, uh -huh. and it landed there, scooped up some dirt and said like, wow, there's just a buttload of water in this. And <laughs> it turns out for every cubic meter of Martian soil, there's 35 liters of water in it. So wow, wow. all that, yeah. So if you filled your refrigerator with Martian soil and then extracted which all the water, fun. yeah, which sounds like <clears throat> yeah, awesome. Like should yeah, everyone do that. should do that. And you extracted all the water out of it, you'd have 35 two liter bottles full of water. So all that work Mark did to make water, all he had to do was heat up dirt. But that's because that was the common understanding at the time that I wrote The Martian. And since then, we've learned, oh, that's no longer the case. There's also a 12-mile-long liquid water lake at one of the poles. Oh, wow. It's underground, but it's there. It's funny you should say that because I feel like a few years ago, if I was imagining being in a colony on Mars, the thing that I would imagine being most difficult was probably water or developing oxygen systems that we could carry around with us all the time. What do you think is, I mean, obviously water, probably a little bit less of a problem now. What do you think is going to be the biggest challenge? Is it going to be sleep, food, fuel? Well, the biggest challenge is always going to be getting to and from Mars. Okay. I mean, if there was a magical doorway that you could just walk through and you're on Mars, then we would have colonized Mars centuries ago. I mean, the problems of dealing with the pressure, the radiation, all this stuff like that, those are really nothing compared to the distances. Hmm. So the way forward, if you want to colonize Mars, is like we need better propulsion technology. We need better spacecraft. How long is the trip there with the propulsion we have now? Depends on which of the propulsions we have now that Ooh. you want to use. So if you want to use traditional chemical propellant, you know, like rockets, right, mm -hmm. then it takes about eight months. And that's if you use the most fuel-efficient way of doing things. Now, if you have ion engines, which are basically, you take a bunch of energy to get charged particles of usually inert gases like argon or krypton, something like that, and then accelerate them really, really fast and throw them out the back of your ship. And that's your propulsion. That's an ion engine. Now, you get very, very little acceleration from that. But you can just keep doing it for, you know, a month or whatever, and you get a pretty good head of steam. And then you don't <laughs> need nearly as much of the fuel. You don't need nearly as much oh. of that as you would a uh, chemical propellant. And so that's another way to do it. It's limited only by how much energy you can carry aboard your ship. So if you had something like a nuclear reactor to power your ion engine, that's what we have in the Martian. It's all real technology that could exist, but hasn't been built at that scale. Mm -hmm. You could get there in, you know, a couple months. Wow. So this is called The Most Useful Podcast Ever. So I wonder, in all of your research and writing, if our listeners were going to be some of the first Mars colonists, what tips would you give them? Wow. Well, if you want to be a Mars colonist, well, you better be a scientist because those are the first people who are going to go. Uh -huh. Also, I mean... I don't even know what to say. It would, have a, it would have a lot to do with what your Mars base was like, right? Yeah, outside will kill you. <laughs> don't, don't, like, go outside. don't go outside. Like, super duper dead for lots of reasons. Yeah, you're probably going to die there. <laughs> <laughs> I would never go to Mars. Make, make peace just, with your was, family I members. Gonna, I was going to ask you that. You would never go to Mars. Oh, even hell though. no. I write about great people. I'm not one of them. I like pizza delivery and quick access to hospitals if I get hurt and uh, all the other trappings of civilization. I'm an earthbound misfit. Yeah. <laughs> Did you learn anything doing all this research, whether it's about the time in transit or life on Mars, that actually turned out to be useful to you here on Earth? Useful to me here on Earth. Not a lot about that can be put into your day-to-day -day life, right? 
You're like, well, no, did you know that Phobos is like within Mars's geostationary orbit and so that it appears to be going backwards in the sky? The guy's like, uh, yes, sir, but you still have to pay for the coffee. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it's not super useful. <laughs> what is your favorite fact you've learned about Mars? Well, that's one of them. That was going yeah, to sound like yeah. a good one. Yeah, to expand a bit on it, it's basically Mars has two moons, Phobos and Deimos, and they both orbit in the same direction. They both go around in the same direction that Mars is spinning, just like almost everything else in the solar system. But Phobos is so close to Mars that it goes around Mars faster than Mars rotates. Okay, so it orbits Mars, I think, once every 11 hours or something like that. And Mars takes just over 24 hours to rotate. So if you're on Mars looking up at the moons, they appear to be going different directions in the sky. Cause, That's cool. Because one's going cause, so fast and you're going, one's yeah, going faster One than is you. going faster than you and the other one is not. Whoa. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. I so like that. That is a good so they appear to be going opposite directions. If Mars had water, what would that do to the tides? Very little. Phobos oh. is really small. Oh, it's small. Yeah. Okay. It's, I mean, compared to our moon, it's nothing. It would not have any effect on tides. What do you think that our first Mars colonies will look like? Will they be entirely encased, do you think? I mean, oh, what, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I definitely think that the... First, human colonies on Mars will be domes and stuff like that. Terraforming okay. is so many centuries away uh -huh. that I believe that we will already have colonized Mars for quite some time before we even consider terraforming. Right. I don't think I would go to Mars either. Yeah. Oh, no, I would. See? Would you go to the moon? Depends on the context. So like <laughs> in my book, Artemis, travel to and from the moon is fairly routine. I mean, it's really expensive, but it's as safe as like international air travel. And so, yeah, under those circumstances, I think I would be willing to go to the moon. But would I be willing to be like an Apollo astronaut? Oh, hell no. No, that is way too risky. Again, I'm not a risk taker. I'm not a danger seeker. I do not have the right stuff. One of my favorite quotes, and I can't remember which astronaut this is, but he said somebody who's willing to sit on top of a massive cache of, of bomb, fuel, yeah. basically, and have someone light it on fire. Someone asked him if he was scared. He said if someone who's willing to do that and isn't scared doesn't understand the situation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that might have been, I could be wrong, but it might have been John Young. Who oh, yeah. Said that. I love that quote because that's kind of accurate. It seems true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, so the show is out on November 12th at 9 p.m. I'm excited to check it out. And do you have a favorite episode? No. No, I don't want to give any spoilers away either, so I kind of can't. You love them all. Yes. You love them all equally. <laughs> I love all my children equally. Well, I don't want to give any spoilers of plot away, so I don't want to talk about which... Which one you yeah, really love. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Fair enough. Well, check it out. You'll have to watch them all. Thank you, Andy, for coming by. Thanks for having me. So our tech editor, Alex George, was at the Apple event this week in, I feel like it was in a weird place, like an art place in Brooklyn. Brooklyn Academy of Music at this theater... The last time I was there, I saw Hannibal Burroughs do stand-up comedy, and they had this, it's called Worldwide Developers Conference, but this one is not known as that. It's a, just an exhibition of their new products. It's basically okay. Tim Cook does a PowerPoint. And so, In like this beautiful old Brooklyn theater. Right, yeah. Okay. So you were there and saw all the new stuff, and I had a question. I feel like we always talk about, here's what's new, blah, blah, blah. What is the top of the line for each of Apple's products at this point? You know what I mean? It's just, I feel like they're constantly like, here's a pencil, here's a this, here's a that. This one now has foxes that <laughs> spaces move just like yours. I don't know. They just keep coming up with crazy things. And I'm like, I don't know if I have all the money in the world and I want to buy the fanciest Apple desktop, laptop, iPad, iPhone, watch, 
What are those? What would you get? Yeah, what do I get? It's strangely tough. They're usually very good at marketing and segmentation of the different products, but it's a little confusing right now. So the one that I think makes it confusing is this one called the MacBook Air. So mm-hmm. remember that? This first came out in 2008. The unveil was Steve Jobs pulling the laptop out of one of those little manila folders. Uh-huh. Uh, I, no, I, I like those because they're supposed to be really light and easy right. to carry around, right? Yeah. Well, what's confusing is that there's that one, but there's also this one called just MacBook. Ah. So there's MacBook Air, MacBook MacBook Pro. Yes. Those are like, those I are find all this laptops. extremely confusing. Right. I'm going to hand to you right now is okay. the MacBook. It's 12 inches. Okay. It went from, originally it was more like having an iPad, but with like a keyboard and a mouse. It, people said it was underpowered. It's gotten a lot better, but that's the smallest one you can get. It's super portable. And then now you have the MacBook Air, which adds Touch ID. So it has a fingerprint scanner on it. Okay. So you can so is, unlock is it with the MacBook Air, is it still lighter? It's not lighter now than the MacBook. So technically the MacBook, period is slightly lighter at 2.03 pounds versus the MacBook Air, which is 2.75 But see, that's pounds. nonsense to me because I feel like in my head, I'm like, okay, MacBook Pro is the fancy one if you got to do like a lot of really serious video editing. And then there's MacBook, which is their standard one. And then MacBook Air probably has fewer things, but is lighter and more transportable. But that is not the case. Correct. The MacBook period, has just one <laughs> MacBook period USB-C port on it, uh-huh. whereas the MacBook Air has two. And it has Thunderbolt, which means that you can do this cool thing, which I really like, where you can just have one plug go into the laptop and into a monitor, and that one plug sends data to have the external monitor work, and it charges it. And they both have headphone jacks, too. But I'm surprised they didn't just kill off the MacBook and have the Air replace it or just have the MacBook become the new Air. Right. Why do they have three levels? That's crazy. It's a little strange. But I have a huge soft spot for the MacBook Air. I think that's one of the coolest products just of all time because it was so thin. It's this really beautiful form factor and it had this kind of tapered outline to it. Yeah. And it took laptops from these bricks that you had to kind of carry around into this category that were known as Ultrabooks at the time. So question now, is the MacBook Air still thinner? than other MacBooks. It's thinner than the Pro. It's thinner than the Pro, but not the MacBook. So the MacBook Air is 0.61 inches at its thickest point. The MacBook MacBook is 0.52. These sound like they're the same. Right. The MacBook non-Air is just a little bit smaller. The trade-off is that the MacBook Air is 13-inch diagonally display, which Uh, I think makes a little bit of a difference. uh It sounds like not much, but it makes a difference for the display. Okay. You're trading just a little bit of size and weight for that extra port. And the price difference is not super crazy? That's where it gets kind of even more annoying. So the MacBook non-Air will start at 1300 and then the MacBook Air will start at 1200 I don't understand. I find Apple extremely confusing. This is why I wanted to have this conversation with you. Because... It's a little tough, yeah. Okay, let's move on to the Pro briefly. Right. What is the advantage of the Pro over everything? It's got the specs for the GPU memory, extra ports. It's stuff that will be of significance to people who are doing specifically playing games or making games and really specifically video editing. Okay. So it's a more high-performance computer. If you're using it for something like running GarageBand or... Pro Tools you could do on an Air 2, but it's for a professional, like somebody like a graphic designer would want to buy a Pro over that. It's a little bit more storage. Yeah, that's the difference between them. Does Apple still make desktops? It does. It does, yeah. Okay, just Uh, just curious. It's even more confusing now, too, because at that same event, they had what's called the Mac Mini. Remember this? They had this for a while. This is too much. Right. So the Mac Mini is this about the size of like a hardcover book or so, and it's a full computer. 
Uh, oh, okay. and you buy it. There's no monitor, there's no keyboard. You buy all that separately. But it's pretty much a functional computer. Like a lot of people use them to, like they'll run a, um, a display in a conference room or something like that. Okay. Or maybe it's your just a home hub computer, that kind mm-hmm, of a thing. Mm-hmm. So that one starts at $800, which is still quite a bit. Right, especially when you've got to go get a display. Right, and, yeah. yeah. And, and then, so this is like the alternative to like a tower. Yeah. Okay. Or an alternative to... The other desktops that they make called the iMacs. That's what I'm looking at right now. That's like an office computer. Right, yeah. Okay. But then they also make an iMac Pro, which is an iMac, but it's cool. It's blacked out. It's expensive. It's got the highest specs. How much do those cost? The iMac Pro starts at $5,000. That's a lot of money. And you can just <laughs> add... I hope you can expense that for your business. Oh, my God. So you can add uh, $2,400 if you get the highest processor. You can add another $2,400 if you if add... If you went top line, you're looking at over $10,000. All right, now I'm curious. Day. We're going to try this out. How, see how, how much, much money can you make when you Okay, like... not including the peripherals, not including like the mount adapter kit or anything like that, or Final Cut Pro, all these things. Whoa, just based on specs, you can get up to $13,200. So that would be for That's like computers. a Kia. Yeah, you could just buy a very sensible used car for one of those. Yeah. And then iPhone-wise, are we still on the 10? 10, yes. We're on the 10s and the 10s Max, which is the larger iPhone 10. I've been using the iPhone 10R. It's the cheaper. I'm doing air quotes as I say that iPhone because it's got stiff glass. It's made of aluminum on the back. The screen is LCD instead of OLED. It's awesome. It's cheaper. It starts at 750 bucks, whereas the other ones are a thousand. Mm-hmm. So it's a weird thing where like getting the less great one is just awesome for most people. Right. I mean, that's kind of been my plan the entire time. I always used to go to AT and T. And right when the new iPhone came out, would get the previous one for whatever the cheap thing was. And it was always fine. My theory on it always was like, this was the thing you guys waited in line for forever six months ago. But now I'm like, get that garbage out of my face. Exactly. And I'm just like, why would you? I don't know. I'm clearly not an early adopter, which is funny because we work at Popular Mechanics. But I feel like Kevin and I are always talking about being the office Luddites, so... No, you're not alone. I, I remember hearing, was listening to responses to the, the iPhone 10 when it first came out, uh-huh. and I was testing it. I was listening to, there's a great podcast called the Accidental Tech Podcast. It's extremely geeky. It's done by uh, an iOS developer, and he was talking about the iPhone 10, and he talked about having it on an airplane and sitting next to somebody who had like the iPhone like you had, where it's not all screen like that, uh-huh. and feeling, I forget the exact word, repulsed, I think was the word, about oh, by but... his older form factor of right. the phone. And it's like, I completely get that. Really? It's, it's a strange phenomenon how... Or like, you have Novelty. the old one, disgusting. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. but it, a year ago, you were like, oh, I have the top of the line. Yeah, yeah. I stood in line for this thing, man. Yeah, yeah totally. I don't, I don't have that repulsion somehow. Yeah, right? I think you're on the right track. That's the advice I give to a lot of people. It's like, unless you, you'll know if you need the flagship one or if you want the flagship one, but otherwise, just get last year's. You'll be just as happy. The functionality is great. Yeah. And if you have an older phone, too, there's rumors now that Apple will start servicing older devices, like going back to the, I think it was the five uh-huh. and giving you services like battery replacement, that kind of thing. Oh, interesting. Because I've got a 6S, I want to say, yeah. and my battery sucks. I mean, that's part of what you pay for is this customer service. So uh-huh. exploit it, take care of your older devices. Yeah, there's a lot to be gained out of that as long as you, if you don't need the flagship, you can save a lot of money and just get every bit out of your phone that you can, uh, that you would need otherwise. Cool. Well, thank you for doing this. You are the most useful person in this office. So other than Roy, but yeah, you, with our powers combined, with your can, powers combined, you can fix pretty fix much the house and set up the sound system too. <laughs> yeah. It's time again for your favorite segment, whack facts. Whack facts. Whack. That's whack. 
I think you two count more as children of the 90s. I was going to say, are you old enough to know? Well, you're like an official child of the 90s in that you were born in the 90s. Indeed. Right. I think one of you should explain whack and why it's coming back. Well, 90s things are coming back, which is why we decided to do this. Mm -hmm. I bet it is. But that's whack is when something was weird in a way that you found lame. It was like lame in an off-kilter. Lame in an off-kilter manner. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Well, now that whack is back, I think we can talk about the other 90s things that are making a comeback, including fanny packs. Fanny packs. Have you guys noticed this? I think we might have talked about this on this podcast before. We probably have. Because I really hate this. You hate the fanny packs I really hate the fanny packs coming back. I feel like there's like a crossbody fanny pack thing Mm. that was happening. Mm -hmm. There's like stylish fanny packs. Oh yeah, I've seen that too. What's strange in general about old things like that coming back. I feel like it's always the thing that wasn't cool then comes back and right. is cool the second time, like the right. socks and Birkenstocks that are happening now. Wait, and I'm that's just like, cool now? Apparently. Oh, I don't man. know. I saw it in an ad for <laughs> an expensive clothing brand. Here's my thing about fanny packs is that it could be easily solved by just giving people pockets, pockets. that are big enough. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what the sweet spot is where a fanny pack is the ideal um, thing. So I'm running the New York Marathon this weekend. By the time this comes out, I will have already run it. But I'm going to use something that's like a fanny pack for that. But that's like, like one of those utility belt, belt things. It's like a little running belt. Yeah, like that's, that's not that's fair, right? That's not for fashion. No, it's not for fashion yeah. at all. In fact, I wish I didn't. It have probably to use will it, be though. I, I, need I bet it will be soon. In there, yeah. Well, I mean, just carry some Jello shots. Jello walk shots. around town. <laughs> Ew. Are Jello okay? shots a '90s thing? I think Jello shots are a forever thing. I think, yeah. I think Jello shots are Jello was invented and yeah. Americans are drunk. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. But this is something that you brought up the other day, Jackie. Is cassette tapes? Yes, are coming back. Cassette tapes are coming back. Uh, Which is crazy to me. Yeah, because they're so fragile. Right. I yeah. remember them. They would get caught in the machine all the time, and you'd always have to use the cleaner, or they'd come out, or then you'd have tape everywhere. Yeah, and... you just like see it in trees around your elementary school. But they think. <laughs> What? The tape. It would just like get torn out and then sometimes, it would just like blow through the wind. Uh, it would just be hanging in the happen. trees. It was it everywhere. Did happen. Mm-hmm. See, you don't know. The I, don't 90s, know. The 90s, I don't know. They were very strange. So tapes are coming back. It actually is apparently a pretty good medium for storing information. They're magnetic. That's how they store it. And I actually am going to be doing an article about this on the web and we'll shortly know more about that. <laughs> but they maintain more information than MP3s do. Like the so sound quality like is better. What about the fuss? What? What about the, like the hissy, the fuss sound that's at the bottom of the every tape? The fuss sound is that a sound? You know, I don't know how to describe it, but that's what it sounds like to me. Like when you get to the end of a tape where there's nothing recorded on it, and there's a little bit of tape left. Uh huh. And there's like a hissing. And there's like sound. a hiss. I feel like that's underneath all of it on a tape. Maybe it's but just. I thought that was just the machinery running the tape. Maybe I don't know. I just They're have actually... always thought of cassettes as not having that great of sound quality, but I understand the convenience. And to me, it's weird it comes back because vinyl, for example, I think has like a very distinctive sound that's different from what a digital audio file sounds like a cassette i don't think of as having like its distinctive thing so it's very puzzling to me and it does Mm. seem also fragile yeah the other thing that's interesting is there actually are different levels of sound quality that you can get from audio tapes it depends on what variety of tape is in it so there's like and and so you know how on the top of tapes they have like little in the corner they would have like a little box tab that was was open so those actually signify which type of tape is in it and how your machine should play it some of the types of tapes that are relatively uncommon but i think that they use for like master tapes because they do use master tapes for things in recording studios and i think those are actually pretty good sound quality so i kind of wonder if things like 
floppy disks are also going to make a comeback because like they don't really have the same nostalgia factor as cassette tapes, I guess, <laughs> but they're probably more secure. Like, I mean, by the time we post this, the election will be over, but I've been thinking about this with like hacking election machines and how all this digital stuff is way less secure. And I wonder if, if, we'll, we'll, go if we'll see a throwback to like physical pieces of equipment because they're just harder to hack. That would be interesting. Put actually. the old AOL CD mailer machinery back in place and send <laughs> yeah. out floppy disk ballots. <laughs> I mean, I think part of the um, audio tape thing is that it's nostalgic for people mm-hmm. like mixtapes. And like, mm-hmm. yes, you could give somebody as a gift like a Spotify mix, but it's like mm-hmm. not as, you know, you don't have the writing on the back. Right. It's not, you didn't it's like choose tangible. them in order. People, somebody could yeah. move them around. It's not tangible. Exactly. So I think that's part of it. And it's kind of speaks to what you were saying about like the safety. If everything is nebulous and online yeah. and unsecure and you don't ever actually have any of it, then it's kind of cool. The idea that like oh, you know, we want things back in the real world. Right. One can only hope that people will want magazines again one day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we'll all have jobs. Well, there have also been TV shows coming back from the 90s, a lot of revivals. So Roseanne, which is now the Connors, because Roseanne's no longer in it, and then Full House becoming Fuller House. I never watched the originals of those, so I really have no feelings. I didn't watch Roseanne, but I watched Full House. But I did not watch Fuller House. I did not watch Fuller yeah. House either. Charmed is back. Sabrina the Teenage Witch I watched the first episode of Sabrina. How's that? It was pretty good. It was very different from the old one. It's like actually scary. Ooh. Yeah. And just, I don't know, a lot of time has passed culturally, even more than on the calendar since the original Sabrina. Totally. Yeah. I'm actually surprised they haven't brought back Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, that was it like, makes sense. That was it huge. Really make sense. I mean, I feel like that's like a more reasonable 90s show to bring back than Charmed. Because Buffy the Vampire Slayer, that's with Joss Whedon, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, like, and like, I never really watched it, but everybody I know who watched it at all is like a huge fan. Yeah. I feel like right. the audience would be really big for it. Totally. Yeah. But maybe it's one of those things that they don't want you to ruin. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the audience might be like, no, don't touch that. Um, Kevin, what would you bring back from the 90s if you could bring something back? Anything? Anything. Probably Super Nintendo. I was really into video games as a kid, and Super Nintendo was like the one system I didn't have, so it's like really up on a pedestal for me. Mm. And every once in a while I try and play a video game now because something comes up here in the office or at a cousin's house who's younger or something. Games are just so complicated. Yeah, mm. they are. They're so much harder well, to n- play. Nintendo Switch is back now. That's like a Game Boy, but a Nintendo, and you can play some yeah. of those games. That's a similar sort of whack. Yeah, <laughs> Whack Revival. Whack Revival. But yeah, just the good old days of Yoshi and Mario and like eight buttons. It'd be great. <laughs> it's the perfect amount of buttons. Yeah. And that's been Whack Facts. Whack Facts. Well, it's been Whack Opinions. Whack Opinions. Whack Nostalgia. Whack Nostalgia. So I, am I interviewing myself? I guess maybe you're interviewing me. <laughs> I'm just going to interrupt the interview every once in a while. Well, Jackie, what do you think about circadian <laughs> rhythms? So I write a column for the magazine called Body Mechanic, which is about health stuff because I like health stuff and my background's in neuroscience, as you guys know. So Uh, anyway, the story is called Why You Should Have Heart Surgery in the Afternoon. And it's in the December issue, which is coming out probably early November. So a couple of weeks, you guys get a head start by listening to our podcast. And this is a cool idea. It's based on circadian rhythms, which I think, I don't know how you feel about it, but Ross McCammon, who is one of our editors who edited this for me, he came out when I pitched it to him, he was like, can you tell me how real those are? Because I feel like I put them in the category of sun signs. Like, right, you know right. what I mean? Like Scorpio or something. <laughs> like, what is the circadian rhythm? Like, is that how you felt about it? Or did I you always think- assumed it was just in terms of sleeping. You wanted to, like, hit your circadian rhythms and that was it. Oh. That's all I knew. Like you wanted to go to bed at the same time? Yeah, just that there was something inside you called a circadian rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> you needed to figure it out with your sleep schedule. Uh-huh. And if you were synced up, you were going to sleep better and feel better. 
I mean, that's not entirely wrong. That's like, most well, of my knowledge. So not entirely I, wrong. Well, I mean, jet lag is related to circadian rhythms. Yeah. So there's a couple things. First of all, every cell in your body and also some plants, like other animals, everything, every single cell in your body has a clock in it. And they're actually, I'm such a nerd because they're so cool, guys. <laughs> it's basically there are certain genes. The guys that figured this out just won the Nobel Prize. They did the research back in, I want to say, the 1980s and 1990s. I have it right in front of me, so that is correct. <laughs> I want to say. I want to say that I can look it up right here. So they did the research in the 1980s and 1990s. And they won the Nobel Prize in 2017, so last year. So basically what it is is there's a bunch of genes that are called, like, they have different names, but they're kind of all clock genes, clock-style genes. Yeah. And when they the genes get activated, they start making proteins that are influential to how your cells work and what turns on, what turns off, how many different proteins are being made, which genes are going. And one of the things that those clock genes make is a kind of like a stop product. Yeah. So it's like, imagine you have a measuring cup and you turn these clock genes on and they start making a bunch of different things. One of them is filling up this measuring cup. And when the measuring cup is totally full, that shuts it off. And then you have to wait until the measuring cup pours itself out and is empty. And once it's empty again, that turns the clock genes back on. So it's like each cell has its own clock counter thing in it, like a measuring cup clock counter is the best way I can describe it. So can you tell me about one of my cells and measuring cups? In a specific way that I will know. So, okay, well, this is kind of just the general mechanism for how all the cells in your body work. Okay. There's also a master clock, and that's in your brain. It's in an area of your brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> I got uh-huh. it. <laughs> uh, it just means above the cross, suprachiasmatic, but it is activated by light. So when you see light first thing in the morning, that tells the clock in your brain, morning, get up eat breakfast in like a couple of hours, then like eat lunch in a couple of hours, blah, blah, blah. And then it's, that's going to set when you start getting tired in the evening, when you get hungry, all that. And that clock is supposed to regulate all the other clocks in your body. It's sending out hormones. It's sending out, here's something you probably heard about is like melatonin, right? right? Melatonin makes you sleepy. I tried taking that and I was scared that I was screwing up my body. You might be. They don't know. Well, they don't know. You know what I mean? But some people's clocks are naturally screwed up. If you're not sleeping well, if you're not sleeping enough, basically you're main clock in your brain can get out of sync with the clocks in like your pancreas or your stomach or whatever. Yeah. So the clocks that are in your stomach or your pancreas, your liver or whatever, what's interesting about them is like, say the different pieces need to be on or off at the right time. So if you eat when your stomach's off, right, that's bad because your stomach doesn't have all the tools. It's not ready to process the food. Yeah. So you basically need to be this fine tuned machine. (laughs) I don't know why it's that crazy to us. It's kind of like, after like the 1950s, everyone was like, oh, we shouldn't eat food out of cans all the time, probably because fresh food is actually pretty good. for." It's the same sort of thing where it's like, oh, we probably are built to like work with the sun. That makes right. sense. You know, we lived outside for thousands and thousands of years. Like that probably makes a difference. And so like sickly office lighting is not really good for people. Right. There's some experiments that were done in mice where they basically turned off the clock genes just in their pancreas. Yeah. And when they did that, if you feed a mouse crappy food, if you don't turn off these clock genes, like they might be fine. If you do turn off the clock genes, they seem fine, but they get diabetes. And they don't know how all this works yet. They've known that about clock genes for a while. They've known about the circadian clock for a while, but they're just now kind of figuring out like, oh, your immune system is stronger at certain times. Right. Oh, your clock might be screwed up and that might be related to why people get depression and they feel like they're under this dark cloud and they that might be why seasonal depression's a thing and so on and so forth. So, so is there a way to affect my clock? 
Yes. So part of the this story was like, what are the things that you can do now? Yeah. One of them is to get enough sleep, which is like the biggest health recommendation that right. anybody ever gets. Get enough sleep. What's enough? I mean, it depends on the person. For an adult, usually eight to 10 hours a night. Let's say eight. eight. to 10? Let's say, actually, I think adults, they say like seven to nine. Seven maybe? to nine. Yeah, maybe seven to nine. Dr. Oz one time said, and it stuck with me. No, you can't trust Dr. I wasn't Oz. like watching him on TV. <laughs> but you start, he wrote a column for Esquire and there was a thing in there. But it was to figure out when your natural sleep cycle is. You know, you're supposed to go to bed at the same time, wake up at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. But when you don't have anything to do one day, just don't set your alarm wake up your body will wake up when it should yeah and then that is when you should start although you kind of have to wait until you've caught up with any sleep deficit that you have so like if you haven't been sleeping well so you have a new baby right if you haven't been getting a lot of sleep and you do that you might sleep until noon right that's might you know what i mean catch up for a couple days then do it like a week to do the dr oz method yeah take a week off sleep in every (laughs) day some sort of sham product yeah (laughs) get get sleep oil (laughs) it's very good for you Another one is to eat all your food within 10 hours. Of waking or just of um, No, <laughs> of just within, within a 10-hour window. Okay. Um, so, like, oh, so my breakfast starts, my clock starts. Right. And so there's something about daylight can affect your clock. So can when you eat. And 10 they, hours is crazy, though. Yeah. I mean, if you eat at 8 o'clock in the morning, then you have to eat at 6 p.m. So, <laughs> so I, mean, I mean, some people would just say skip breakfast, you know. Right. But isn't that unhealthy? Isn't breakfast the most important meal of yeah, the day? Yeah, I mean, actually, so a lot of uh, what the research shows is eat breakfast like a king and what is it, lunch like a something, oh, like dinner like off. a pauper. Yeah, so yeah. You, you basically want to eat earlier. But I mean, that's really hard for them, I mean, especially those of us that work in New York City. You don't get out of work till 6, right. 6.30. Like and 8:30. then Yeah, I know. I eat at 9 all the time. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's tough. But this is based on research on mice, again, that mice missing certain circadian clock genes are prone to obesity no matter what they eat. But if you keep them on a tight eating schedule of 10 hours, that goes away. And they think that it's related to the timing genes. That's very cool. And then they actually think that circadian rhythms may be related to metabolism. Like why some people seem to have a better metabolism than other people. Like you might, there are the strength of your clock, like how powerful your clock is and how difficult it is to screw it up. Yeah. That tends to protect people from all sorts of diseases and metabolic issues and all sorts of things. So it may just be that some people have stronger clocks. Right. And that's what it is. There was one cool thing that you taught me in this that I already used in my life. And it was about, you're supposed to get a flu shot early in the morning. That is correct. Yeah. And so I did that. And you haven't had the flu yet, so. (laughs) I mean, these are all, you know, this is like science. So these are all correlations. And and you also, each individual is different. But But why not? If you have the choice of all day, I figured I'll do it in the morning because Jackie said so. Yeah. So this one, this was a 2016 study found that the immune system created four times the antibodies to a flu shot when it was given in the morning versus the afternoon. So especially the flu shot, those can be variable in terms of how much protection you get because yeah. they do it so far in advance. You're looking at a number of different strains of flu. They may only be, you see these articles that they may only be like 36 to right. 70% effective from year to year. Yeah. So like you want all the help you can get. So go ahead and do it in the morning. And like I was saying in the headline for this, you might want to have heart surgery in the afternoon. Is that for I, you or for your doctor's circadian rhythm? <laughs> for you, actually. That's a good question, though. I just want to know when he or she is at their peak. Well, that's, I, I mean, you'd think they'd be in the morning, which is why I think this study was such a big thing because everyone was like, well, I thought you wanted to be on the dock at first thing in the morning so the doctor's not tired. Yeah, don't they schedule surgeries so early where you go in at four? I remember my dad did a thing and they had to get up at five to go in for his knee. Well, you usually can't eat before it. Yeah. So I think that's oh, part that of it too. is they want you to just like get up, go in, get it done. And yeah, I think in case something goes wrong, you know, you don't want things to go wrong and you're the last shift of the day or (laughs) whatever. Well, janitor's here to help. Yeah, so we'll figure it out. There is also some, this is a different group of research, uh, but there is some evidence that people, the doctor is probably 
better right after they eat. So maybe right after lunch is probably So bring a snack to your doctor. Bring a snack to your doctor and get your heart surgery. For your heart surgery in the afternoon. (laughs) Yeah, this study found that uh, heart attacks were half as likely in patients who had valve replacements later in the day. I mean, half is huge. That's pretty substantial. That's what I'm saying. These these are pretty big. I talked to a couple of researchers about this and I was like, what kind of effects are we talking about here? And he was like, this is huge. Like, this is a lot. Yeah. And it's things like, you know. Seems unfair to the people who don't get scheduled in the afternoon then. Well, I wonder what's going to happen because like this is a whole new field kind of is figuring out. So, for example, if you're doing chemotherapy, chemotherapy given at different times of day when the targets are on or certain transporters are off or whatever. Like there's a lot of different research groups that are looking at that might be more effective than other times. Well, what happens if they find out you've got to give chemotherapy from 8 to 9 a.m.? And everybody has to be treated at that time. I mean, what happens then? You know, or like the same with heart surgery in the afternoon. Well, do cardiac surgeons just not work in the morning now or whatever? You know, it seems like it could be tough for scheduling and for access to healthcare. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, but this is just a very interesting line. I think it's similar to when they started looking at bacteria and realizing, oh, we shouldn't just eradicate all of it. The microbiome is actually important and you know, whoops. So <laughs> this is a similar sort of idea, and it's pretty exciting. So flu shots in the morning. Flu shots in the morning, heart surgery in the afternoon. Don't do shift work Some if you can. Yeah, right. I know. If just you walk can. into your boss. Like, I'm sorry. Well, actually, so the World Health Organization has classified circadian disrupting shift work as a class 2A probable carcinogen. And wow. in Denmark, the government is giving compensation to nurses who later developed, night shift nurses who later developed breast cancer. Is it Finland that they did that thing where they put everybody's income, every single person in the country, their income is available based on their tax return from the year before. Whoa. I just, when you said Denmark, I made me think of it. So that nurse, I don't think it was Denmark though, but that nurse's income would be higher and you could see that be like, oh, she must do shift she work. She must do shift work. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Wow. Is that a good idea, do you think? I only read the headline. It was fun yeah. enough, but it was about how you can look up your neighbor's income and some people think it's a great thing. Some people think it's a horrible thing. Right. Um, huh. I always thought at offices, it's Off- a great and horrible it's thing. Like, so... I worked in an office where the boss wasn't the most organized person and left a spreadsheet of everyone's salary on the server. And somebody found it and shared it with everybody. And we found out that the women were being vastly underpaid and a number of like certain hires were being vastly underpaid. It's nuts when you see it in such a concrete form. Yeah. You hear this like, okay, women don't make as much money, but then you see. Yeah. And and we all lobbied for higher pay. And the guy was really rude about it, but we all got raises. So, you know, I mean, in some cases it might be actually useful, but... On the next episode. On the next episode. We'll bring everybody in and be like, how much do you make? Uh, Let's not do that. Okay. So, yeah, it's cool. (laughs) That's how the segment should end. And that's how the segment should end. (laughs) It's cool. For this week's testing table, we have our snack aficionados here. I feel like you guys are our snack experts. Lara yeah. Sorkanich, whose last day it is. It's yes. your last day. Farewell. Yes. Bye. I guess the best way to celebrate is with snacks. And Maude, yes. you're still here forever, but you you like snacks. I do like snacks. <laughs> so this is actually a testing table for our, or I'm, I'm doing recipe testing for an article. It's called The Lunch Pail that we do in the magazine. And it's like how to improve your office lunch with just the equipment you have at your office, which is like a microwave or like we were using a torch the other day to make s'mores and to make hot dogs. You and know, we made a, a hot dog and a thermos. Because everybody's got a torch at their desk. <laughs> yes. Well, I think people should have a torch no, at their desk. No, but it's portable. It it's small and portable and, and fun. So this is my first attempt at a ramen crispy treat. So we may have to try it again. First of all, it's basically just butter and marshmallows and crushed up ramen. That's what it is, which is similar to what a rice crispy treat is, which is butter and marshmallow and uh, rice, rice crispies. crispies. So it's not that different. And you can't eat ramen by itself. You just it's like crunchy like yep. chips. 
The first time I tried this, I put a, some butter in the bottom of a cup, and I think a coffee cup would work a lot better than what I was using, which was a paper cup. Mm. Oh, um, yeah. And I microwaved it. I put it on for a minute. Did it catch on fire? Which was a bad choice. Um, no. In 15 seconds, the marshmallows all exploded out of the top and got oh, all over everything. Good. These are like peeps. I bet that's fun to clean. Mm. Right. So I had to take the thing out and wash the whole yeah. bottom, so that was fine. Yeah. So then I realized you could microwave it for like five seconds, like five, seconds yeah. five, ten seconds at a time. Just put in a couple more marshmallows, microwave it. And then finally got hot enough, I just put a marshmallow in it and stirred it. And oh. then I put in the crisp ramen. Hmm. So, and, you, and you don't do anything to the ramen before? No. You literally unpackage it. You unpackage yeah, you it. Can, you you, can cr- you crush it like in the Well, bag. I meant you don't cook it. Right. And you definitely do not add the seasoning packet because <laughs> that <laughs> would be gross. Unless maybe it isn't. I don't know what you were into. So you guys want to try it? Yes. Let's yes. try it. Let's try it. Crispy treat. I'm actually, I'm actually oh. just going to record this right now because our art directors just came in saying, I heard those Krispy Kremes in here, and so did Peter Martin. So now we have everyone just snuck into the podcast room. It looks so much grosser than I expected. What? Does it? Who made it? I was going to say, on first glance, I would probably think that that's some kind of like cheese situation. Wouldn't because you? it looks like ramen? Yeah, with cheese. like macaroni and cheese. It situation. looks like curdled cheese. Like I, don't, I don't know Krispy if I call treat? it curdled, but curdled. I, right, but right. pull the mic to your face. It's a ramen crispy treat. It's a ramen crispy treat. That sounds kind of awesome. I think so. Um, Have you already talked about who does this? I've never heard of it. Actually, what happened is I was writing our lunch mail. Thank you. I was writing our lunch pail page and started looking around online because I was trying to figure out what all you can do with ramen in the office that could be cool. So you can put a lot of like if you bring sauces from home, you can make mm-hmm. pesto in the blender. You can put that on it. You can put a lot of things on it. And I was just looking for ramen hacks. And people get out of control with yeah. ramen hacks. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. They put like ramen on shepherd's pie instead of potatoes and call it remembrance pie, which is stupid. <laughs> Uh, very, very, stupid, very, very stupid. Why would anyone do that? But this, I was just like, I saw it from a number of different blogs. I don't think I can attribute it really to one person. Maybe one person came up with it at some point, but so did everyone else. So it's very simple. And let's try it. I think we should try it. We only have three forks. So if you guys want to try no, it. Like, ladies first. After you guys are... Looks marshmallowy. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I like it that's on a medical tray. Well, the medical tray is left over from when we were doing the um, here, boys. The torch it's testing. Like a, it's like a brain. Yeah. It does look brain-like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Peter, that's for you. We're not gonna all try it at the same time, like the mm. Eucharist. Oh well, Dwayne already ate his. Oh, Dwayne's not very Catholic. <laughs> I guess neither am I. <laughs> Are you ready? Oh God, the chewing sounds in the microphone. Hmm. Back well, I want to chew in the microphone. No, no. <laughs> it's chewier than I thought. Lara took her chewy. headphones off. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. You know, what? it's pretty good. Is it? It's, it's good. Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I was very skeptical in the beginning, but now I'm pleasantly surprised. Now you're pro, right? Yeah. It looks disgusting, but <laughs> but it's good. It's good stuff. I mean, it's just marshmallows and butter and ramen. Like, how bad could it be? I think maybe you could put the ramen bits in with the butter when you were microwaving it, mm. so it'd be slightly less crunchy. Yeah. The or would they get soggy? Though. You think that you think it's good like to be that crunchy? Crunch, yeah. Well, because isn't that the point of the Krispies? Yes, that's true. For the, the Krispies get a little less crunchy, but but I like it. I'm pro, I'm pro this ramen. Yeah, I am also pro. Clara? Yeah, it's actually like a much crunchier rice crispy. Yeah, cool. All right, Peter and Dwayne, who snuck in in the middle of our ramen crispy <laughs> treat. Speaking of the mic, what do you think? Would you? Yeah, I approve. It's less sweet than a rice crispy treat, which is why I like it. They're getting seconds. Yeah. I'm seeing seconds happening. <laughs> okay, I'm voting this pro ramen crispy treats. I'm pro. Blair, will you put your headphones back on? Mm-mm. Stop trying. <laughs> so has this myth been confirmed? I don't think that's the show that we're on. 
That's our show, y'all. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Brandcasters, Inc. at www.brandcastingu.com. We'd like to thank Bettina Warshaw and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about life hacks, projects, science, and technology, check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.